Hello everyone, welcome back to It's a Wonderful Podcast, the main show itself, episode 148. And Nolan, we have um, a little bit of a, a little bit of something different, I suppose, compared to the usual uh, stuff we've had on lately. Yes. I guess. Um, certainly a a later movie. I would, you know, I've been banging on recently a lot about pre-code movies. This is what you call a post-code movie, because it's after it's after all the studio system and all that even came to an end. This is 1969. We're going into today. Um, I am excited to talk about this movie, particularly with you, because you chose it, and I'm excited that you chose it. Yeah, I I should clarify, before we started recording this, Morgan was trying to think of an adjective to say that he was surprised that I chose this. I was. And, and frankly, I don't know why I chose this, and I'm loving this is a very different episode, not only because it's a movie you'd not expect me to pick, but because Morgan is wearing a bathrobe, and he's very slyly covered his chest hair, just to stop this discussion getting a little too exciting considering what we're going to talk about i picked midnight cowboy the 1969 buddy drama starring uh a young dustin hoffman and yes. everyone's least favorite anaconda victim john voight <laughs> that's a that's a good description of john voight i would also call him everyone's least favorite high school football coach <laughs> because he's also definitely that I just remember in the movie Anaconda rewinding the scene where he gets devoured fully by a big snake. Yeah. But, I mean, look, it's fair to say that John Voight may be everyone's favourite disillusioned cowboy part-time sex worker in late 60s New York. The sex worker thing was new to me. when I, I wanted to watch this because I thought it was going to be something like akin to maybe Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You, and it's you not. Thought this was a, did you think this was a Western? I thought it was like a sort of neo-noir Western from okay. the poster and the title. And I was very surprised about five hours ago when I put it in on Amazon that it was not. No. No, it was not. It was not at all. I like how you referred to it as a buddy drama. Because that makes it sound quite happy. Nolan, this is a very miserable movie. It's very miserable. It's extremely miserable. It it made me question happiness, to be honest. It is, I think, fair to say, a movie at its heart about friendship, though. It's about friendship. It's about finding friendship in the loneliest of places. Because, oh my god, are both of our central characters incredibly lonely. Um, and they're trying to get by in whatever difficult way they can. Obviously, they're in, the, they're in New York of the late 60s, which is a, is a difficult place anyway. Um, a lot of the world's changing around them faster than they can keep up with it sometimes. Or... Well, they have. They also they have their dreams. They have their setbacks. John Voight, in particular, obviously Joe Buck. He's very full of himself. He's convinced that he's going to move to New York from Texas and be a, a a big success. It's not really clear in in what field, but he just kind of wants to earn. But he ends up. Being, well, it ends up not being quite that simple, doesn't it? No, and I feel like we should preface this. I'm going to get serious for a minute. Please uh, do. This movie, I assume this discussion will contain a discussion point about rape and yes. uh, sexual violence. So if you're a listener of ours and that's something that you don't want to hear about, uh, there's your warning. Because, yeah, uh, that's a fair I mean, tr point. Well, trigger, trigger warnings are important. I've been learning that recently through book Twitter. And I feel like we should start bringing that into our movie discussions as well, especially from the time periods that we talk about and everything. I, I completely agree. I think that's a wonderful point. Well done. Um, we, we, we will look to do that moving forward. Excellent. <laughs> applause. Applause oh, for awesome. Nolan and his intelligence. 
we like that. Um, because yes, this this movie does deal with some very troubling subject matter at times. Um, like I said, it tries its best. It tries its best to be a positive, optimistic movie, but it can't help bringing everyone right back down to a crushing reality. Yes. Um, it's... Which I feel is kind of very appropriate for the time in which it came out. I think it's a phenomenal encapsulation of uh, the US in the late 60s. Um, from a, a movie industry standpoint, obviously, in the late 60s, we have the end of the studio system. Hollywood's trying to find its new feet, isn't it? It's trying, you know, you get the new wave directors, primarily people like, you know, Scorsese coming up and Peter Bogdanovich and people like that. Um, but Midnight Cowboy falls into the new wave Hollywood trend as well. Mm. Um because it's a completely different style of movie than what would have been produced under the studio system. Um, and I think it, because it's a movie itself about trying to find your feet, I think it's mirrored really well with the fact that the American movie industry in the late 60s is trying to find its its new feet. And thankfully, obviously, it did that very quickly. Um, but it had to go through that change and it needed those big intelligent voices um, in there to give it that change. Uh, you think of horror at that time with Night of the Living Dead and stuff like that. Night of the Living Dead, tiny little independent movie. Um, but you get, obviously that is the focus of american cinema in the late 60s and, and early 70s and look this movie won the oscar for best picture it remains the only x-rated movie ever to win the oscar for best picture you would never get you will never get that again because you will never get what an x-rated movie is considered today to win a best picture x-rated, x-rated movies movie, are not the same thing now an x-rated movie today would have to be like I, I don't even want to imagine what would be in an X-rated movie today. Well, we all know what an X-rated movie is today. They're found on shifty-shifty websites on the internet, Janine. Uh, Janine I called you Janine, then, because I, that I, sounds like something I would have said to I Janine. Mean, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend I'm not flattered. Janine's a lovely person, but... Uh, uh, no, my name's Nolan, buddy. <laughs> you are Nolan. You are Nolan. Um, yeah. But then... <laughs> I forgot what I was doing. Um, but no, that's what... That's that's what X-rated movies are. That's why they won't win Best Picture. Because, oh my God, what's going on there, basically? Um, but they were something completely different. They were, you know, akin to uh, an 18-rated movie in Britain or an NC-17-rated movie in the US uh, today. Um, so pretty rare still, but certainly when you're dealing with the subject matter that this movie does deal with i think a a heavy rating like that is kind of warranted because Mm -hmm. you certainly can't show this to impressionable youths well that that was their defense for uh, making it x-rated when i did my research yeah yeah i i just love that it i love that it won best picture i loved when the academy you know made bold choices with their uh, best picture winners. It's refreshing. It's refreshing from 1969. It's Uh, refreshing from 1969. It's weird. What I got from this straight away, and I, I hate to say this, but I really related to John Voight at the beginning of this movie. I understand that completely. Because I too know what it's like to work in a job that feels soul-crushing. That you're not getting anything out of it. You walk in and it's the same old meandering shit every day. Yeah. It it can take the life out of you. And he kind of goes on this road trip like this, I want to get to the big bright lights, big city. And I was thinking, oh, this is going to be um, 
gonna be a cool cowboy walking around New York until I realized he starts asking where the Statue of Liberty is. He does. And I'm like, well, did they not have maps in this era, John Voigt? (laughs) Then you find out he is a sex worker. And I didn't know what to make of that at first, but as it goes on, it doesn't... The movie easily, I think, could have shown sex work as like this really abhorrent, evil thing. But it doesn't. It's kind of his character's way of surviving, and that's surprising for a movie from the 60s. That's exactly what it shows. It shows, you know, it shows that kind of work in this kind of situation, because obviously there are many forms of that kind of work, um, even more so, you know, as we live today. Uh, but in certainly in this context, it is seen as a, as a way of surviving, and basically his only way of surviving. It seems to be all he's good at, and he will tell you that himself, you know? He is very, like I said before, he's he's very full of himself in sometimes an endearing way, to be honest with you, but sometimes in a painfully naive way. He often seems like the small fish in the big pond. Yeah. Which is... Is exactly is just it's exactly what the movie's trying to portray. His his naivety uh, in many of the situations he finds himself in, um, but his determination and, and and his dream to kind of succeed um, in in a difficult world never ends. Even when it looks really really bad. It's still there. He's still got that positive mindset, despite the trauma he's been through in the past, and despite the incredibly difficult moments he finds himself in in New York, because because he's essentially homeless for a lot of the movie, um, because he's completely broke, but he's still walking around kind of strutting around showing off a a a persona of confidence which can be admired but it can also be kind of it it looked at in be kind of damaging almost as well damaging exactly yeah it, it can be incredibly damaging he doesn't face the truth a lot which like I said, you know, it can go. It can go either way. It can be admirable, and it can be quite. You know, you can be sympathetic towards that. Yeah, and I like all the sort of subtle storytelling things in the beginning. You you can tell like his style of, uh, for lack of a better word, coming on to somebody, is yes. very different than it is in the big city. Like, uh, I imagine his sort of moves might work on someone from his homeland, or, I mean, he's from Texas, and it's got that sort of southern charm, but when you're in the big city in New York, it's kind of like, who the fuck are you? Like, stop being cheesy, put the cowboy hat away, what kind of performance are you putting on here? But he doesn't get that in his mind, and I, I found that to be a very subtle form of doing the sort of fish out of water scenario. Yeah, people see through him too quickly for his liking, um, and like you know, like we said, he has to he has to find a a new way of going about things. And fortunately for him, he meets a another incredibly down on his look, rather depressed person in the form of Enrico Rizzo, also affectionately known by some people. He comes across as Ratso. Which I think is a phenomenal insult nickname. He sounds like a Bugsy Malone character. He does sound like a Bugsy Malone. <laughs> he does. He sounds exactly like a Bugsy Malone character. But I really like Dustin Hoffman in this movie. I think Dustin Hoffman gives a better performance than John Voight. And I really like John Voight in this movie. Um, from I what I've seen of that. John Voight, this is my favourite John Voight performance. Dustin Hoffman, however, fantastic character actor, and has done loads of great performances after this. Yeah, I, look, I I love Dustin Hoffman. I do 
prefer Dustin Hoffman uh, as from the two from the two actors, not just as, as a person, but also as an actor. But I do I do prefer him in this movie as well. I think I think uh, you know Rico's a he's a tough nut to crack, so to speak. He kind of he doesn't want to be your friend at first, but he's kind of desperate for any sort of company which is is similar to what you know is similar to what joe was looking for which is why they they work so well as a as a little friendship bond going on there and potentially more because there is you know there's a, there's a little bit of subtext going on which is always nice and uh, it's always you know impressive to see when it's done well and it's done subtly and that kind of stuff um but I really like Rico. I really like his just. I really like that his difficulty is emphasized by the fact that he's got a limp and that he's kind of got these really bad teeth and he's just greasy and nobody seems to like him at all. He's not just a struggling guy like Joe, he's the complete opposite of Joe. Joe is a very handsome sure of himself um everybody kind of likes him who comes across him guy rico's the complete opposite everybody kind of looks at him funny and people hate him but he's much smarter than joe he's much cleverer and shrewder than joe um they make a really good friendship um i really do like them i just think it's fun to see Dustin Hoffman play kind of against type and particularly against type from what he was doing in the late 60s because I read somewhere that that Mike Nichols who directed The Graduate warned Dustin Hoffman of doing of doing this movie of doing Midnight Cowboy because he feared it would tarnish his reputation as the all-American kid basically and oh boy does it do that but it's hardly made dustin hoffman suffer he's outstanding and he's had an outstanding career um, because he's able to play such a variety of characters even though it's it's nice to see him come back to a light-hearted slightly comedic character every now and again the fact we know he can turn on the drama when he wants to is what makes him an impressive actor for me i mean dustin hoffman for me isn't one of the greatest actors that ever lived the guy he does something with body language to me that's so good and especially in this movie and in things like the graduate and stuff yeah but also uh, this is a little bit sort of off topic but he brings that kind of humanity to everything he does even when he plays captain hook there's he kind of plays up the tragedy of that character so much that you wouldn't expect it from him. And yeah. in this movie, I'm glad that he went off and didn't do the typecasting thing. I don't get why actors like would want to be typecast. In fact, that may be because I'm just the kind of person who likes character actors who have range mm-hmm. more. You know, I, I much prefer someone like... Uh, like an Anthony Michael Hall over someone like a Tom Cruise, who's generally the same kind yeah. of guy in every movie he's in. Whereas I think yeah. Anthony Michael Hall had a bit more range. It's a similar thing with Dustin Hoffman and John Voight here. I mean, John Voight, even after this, kind of did play the same kind of guy in all the movies he was in. He was always the very heartstrong, all-standing American. Yeah, And Dustin Hoffman did a bunch of really great character or actor performances. It's just It's more appealing to me. There's an art I, to I, it. I think there is. I, I I can see why, and I do, I do agree. What do you make of their friendship, though? I think it's uh, it works perfectly because uh, despite them being two very different characters, their chemistry is really good. And I don't know how much they maybe got along on set or anything, but that could all be down to the writing as well. Like, it's very hard especially for me to write two characters who have very differing viewpoints and to make that friendship believable because for a lot of the time you could be thinking in the hands of a lesser writer you would be thinking 
why are these two even friends? They clearly don't like yeah. each other. And with uh, Voight and Hoffman in this movie, it's like, they clearly see the world differently and they get frustrated with one another, which makes those great conflict acting scenes really shine. But you can tell they sort of know that they're kind of the only other person who's really there for them. They need each other. Yeah. It, Desperately. It, it's almost a toxic friendship in a way, but in a kind of warm sense. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's a good way. It's, it's the toxic friendship that actually is entirely necessary because you don't have anyone else. You need someone. Everybody needs a friend. You know, whoever they are, everybody needs one friend. These two have each other. They've both gone through their struggles. Dustin Hoffman, of course, nearly very famously gets run over by a taxi and shouts at him, I'm walking here, I'm walking here in one of the great improvised lines in movie history. I didn't know that's where that line originated from. I thought that was just something New Yorkers said. And that's why it's such a good line, Nolan, because you thought that. It's become so ingrained in the culture. I I mean, even even Spider-Man at some point says, I'm swinging here. (laughs) Brilliant. I love it. Um... Look, I always love. I do always love watching movies with particularly kind of huge, famous lines like that, because it's always fun to watch them in the context of their movie. Because you've seen them and heard them so often outside of the context of the movie, and it's such a kind of. I mean, it's not a meaningless scene, is it? It's their first real walk around the city together, um, when they were first becoming friends. But there's nothing particularly impressive about Dustin Hoffman just saying that. It's just become an absolutely iconic line. You wonder why, but you love the fact that you're watching it at this point. I have a theory Um, as to why it's become iconic. You said it was improv, right? I believe it was. I believe it was. Well, another line from a famous movie that was improv was like, you're going to need a bigger boat from Jaws, right? So True. Where I get from this is it shows that character actors like Roy Scheider or like uh, Dustin Hoffman get so into their characters that when they improv, it's kind of like they're echoing the essence of the script. And that's yeah. what makes the line unexpected and great because you don't those kind of lines you can't really plan for. I don't think anyone could have written those lines in a script because they'd get immediately thrown out in an editing stage. But it's it shows the the value of film over like uh, something like a book. You can't really improv lines in a book, whereas in a script and in a movie. It's more. It's a bigger piece of art, and when yeah. they really get the spirit of what the story is, that's where a script, which is a blueprint, can transform into a movie, which is a higher piece of art. Not necessarily a higher piece of art, but like a different piece of art. Compliment. Yeah, I get what you mean. I I do agree with that as well. It does show class and quality from Dustin Hoffman in in that particular scene because he literally just carries on with what he was saying after they've finally crossed the street, um, which is fun. There's so many little weird nuggets of trivia that you can get from this movie because it was kind of a really... or or, or a cheaper movie to make. John Voight made uh, Actors Minimum Wage, Screen Actors Guild Minimum Wage for this movie. He wasn't paid any more than that. And you had lines like that and situations like I'm walking here because they didn't have professional permits to film on the streets of New York. They just had to try and do it. So if a taxi came, a taxi came. If there was somebody walking unfortunately in front of the shot, somebody was walking unfortunately in front of the shot. It again adds to the kind of impressiveness of being able to make a movie like this and what a lot of American filmmakers were were kind of facing 
in this time the the new breed of american filmmakers as they were now they're the old breed now there's a few of them even you know only a few of them even left but they were at a time the the new bold fresh faces and their want and desire for making movies is shown in their movies. That's why I I, I love watching movies like Midnight Cowboy, um, like like Mean Streets from Scorsese, because they are so raw. They're such raw movies, but they are so. You to watch you you watch them as though you're watching them in in the time they came out, and I feel like you you get a great deal more from them because you can really place yourself in there and they I mean they're both about New York I also feel like New York late 60s early 70s is always a fascinating place for movies to be set because it's renowned and it was such a crime-ridden kind of struggling city at that point it was it hadn't had its kind of rebirth of wealth yet that we see in like wall street movies and the 80s and all that business when everybody was wearing a suit we're not at that stage of new york yet this is dirty new york this is hard new york this is it's still got the aura of new york city new york city will always have a particular vibe to it but it's, uh, I love how movies like this are just able to capture the danger and difficulty of the city they're set in within their characters. You know, it's yeah, they make the city a character essentially. Yeah, they make the city into a character, but the characters reflect the place they're in as well. Yeah, you know, and, and you can always tell in some movies where they don't really give much thought to the setting, like it's literally just a backdrop, and yeah. when you see movies like this, it really shows how important setting is to storytelling, as much as characters, dialogue, plot, and themes are. Yeah. I mean, is there any kind of standout moments for you in this movie? It's all the small moments for me, like uh, the stuff like John Voight's character making him soup in a mug, and then yeah. kind of arguing over that, like bickering siblings. I mean, and of course the first scene where uh, John Voight is with some sort of socialite woman, and mm-hmm. then yeah. that's when you get like a sense of his character, and when he asks for money, and then that woman just kind of goes hysterical on him. That was a very... That was a very standout moment for me because up until then I thought, oh, John Voight's just this really naive person. He doesn't really get how the big city works. But then you can kind of see it from that woman's perspective. Like, have I just been played for a fool here? Yeah. And the sad thing about it is that John Voight doesn't really know that. He only knows like his southern way of being brought up. So I like seeing small cultural differences like that. It can really reflect character well. Yeah. I I I agree. I I do agree with that. A lot, you know, at, at the start of the movie, it's very clear that Joe wants to go to the big city to get as many girls as he possibly can. That's his that's his aim. That's his game. And along the way, he ends up kind of well, he ends up being intimately involved with uh, men as well, or finding himself in the situation, uh, in in that situation. Now, you are much more appropriate to speak about this than I am. I mean, I'm not um, the one wearing a bathrobe. Well, you're not the one wearing, no, you're not, but you are wearing a garden gnome hat. That is so, pink. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Nolan, there is, there is a sense. There is a there's a big presence of homosexuality in the movie, from 
a lot of supporting characters. You have that one guy who calls, uh, who's like the main the main one who calls Rico Razzo, is uh, is a gay man who doesn't get along well. <laughs> doesn't get along well with Rico at all. No. Um, but homosexuality is a big part of this movie. Um, it really is. I think at one point, I mean, obviously, okay, there are slurs thrown about left, right, and center. We know that. I, I honestly expect that from movies in this era at the point. It doesn't shock me anymore. I'm no, not going to be on Twitter trying to cancel the movie. It is what it is. No, but I, I do, I do love, I do love the argument they have. Um, you know, yeah, Joe and Joe and Rico, where Rico basically call calls Joe out for dressing like a cowboy because apparently dressing like a cowboy is gay. Um, he doesn't use gay, you know. Obviously, he uses I the slur. He uses the word that I use when I want to have a smoke. Correct. Uh, and Joe comes back with it to him and says, "John Wayne, are you calling John Wayne gay?" I kind of love that because it sh- it shows a thing of masculinity and how quickly it's shifted. Because you look back at the 50s and, like, cowboys, they were the whole, this, they were this big thing of all what a masculine person is, like Wayne and Eastwood and all those. And to some people who are still living in the past era like that, they still yeah. are. But yeah. I can imagine for that time it'd be like, it. I guess it's it's similar to us growing up. Uh, we, we talked about this last time we were on, when, like, tie-dye shirts and... Fancy mm. denim and everything was like kind of cool, hip, and trendy. And then as time went on, that was considered to be like, well, it, I was called the similar slurs for dressing like that as well. But it to me, it showed well, that's that. Unpleasant. Yeah, well, that's just uh, high school for you. Uh, well, perhaps. To to me, it shows like um, how your upbringing kind of defines you and how change kind of gets more scary as you get older like when you're younger change i think is a bit more appealing because kids they go through different phases teenagers go through a lot of different things trying to figure out their identities but i think the sort of pressure when you're older to and then be told you have to change is a lot more scary because you've spent a long time getting to that sense and you feel kind of in your for lack of better words in your boots about who you are and to have that challenged, that's almost like challenging someone's masculinity, and that's kind of where the homosexual undertones come down for me. It's like, in that time, if you were a homosexual, you would have been seen by some as less of, of a man. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think uh, it highlights what homosexual struggles were at the time. It portrays them as they were at the time. If they portrayed it, at, actually, if they did portray it as like this really good thing that you just shouldn't judge, I would question it it would feel almost a little bit preachy the fact that it isn't afraid to show how hard it was at the time and still show a really good platonic male friendship i think that works in its favor definitely definitely it's uh you know it's very very intelligent in that way it would seem incredibly out of place for the movie to all of a sudden be unbelievably Pro homosexuality, it it would feel because it, it it then wouldn't be the time capsule of late of the late sixties US that it is. It's not it shows pro both homosexuality, sides. but it's pro the friendship between these two characters, and I think that's kind of what it's getting at. Yeah, it because it, it shows it shows both sides, and it shows the changing in ideals and attitudes that are certainly going on in the US in the late 60s. You think about civil rights and the hippie movement and peace and love and all that kind of stuff. Ideals in the population are changing famously. And they're going to change later on with like Vietnam War and everything. Exactly, which is, you know, we can talk about that in context of what you were saying before with simple with the simple image of the cowboy the all-american hero but 
American heroes, the late sixties, people don't think American heroes are American heroes anymore because they've seen all the damage that these so-called American heroes can do to some people and they don't like that. So ideals are changing, attitudes are changing. The cowboy all of a sudden becomes a icon of, or, or a kind of a symbol of homosexuality. You also get that with kind of police officers at a time, firefighters, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get, the, the whole YMCA thing, yeah, village people, all that. The entire village people. No, we're not just talking about the village people, but... Let's be fair to the look, let's be fair to the village people. They may have significantly changed the image of, of of what is kind of homosexual iconography. You know? They may have done that. Um But I certainly think a movie like Midnight Cowboy A movie like Midnight Cowboy helps change those attitudes on the face of what the typical American hero is. Because this is a cowboy that is a very real human being, that is not to be kind of worshipped as a perfect figure. It's a movie that brings our easy way of thinking of... of years past, and I'm talking in context of 1969, our easy way of thinking of years past, it it shuts that down completely. It forces us to challenge ourselves, it forces us to think about what's really going on. And we see that all the time in late 60s American culture. It's all about change, there's so much drastic change going on i love that we're all, that we also get it in our best picture winners you know yeah and that's where this movie shines for me especially and the other scene that really got to me was the end because of just how uh tragic how tragic unbelievably sad and how quiet the moment is as well yeah. i don't I don't recall what the illness uh, Dustin Hoffman had was. But it's it felt pneumonia, so... I think. Pneumonia. See, I would have guessed from the homosexual undertones that it'd be AIDS. Possibly. Well, poss- but I suppose uh, in terms of... A, AIDS, AIDS was like the illness. 80s and that, wasn't it? It was like 20 years after. Uh, late, late 80s, early 90s, wasn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess was was the, the height of particular crisis which you know let's call it what it was everybody was panicking about it yeah, I, st- I still think there's there's plenty of nonsense that went out you know in, in in the AIDS crisis and all that was it like somebody shook somebody's hand once and it caused a stir because this somebody had AIDS and oh my god can can we get it was, it, it they was treated of, it like it was damn covid it, it was a lot of fear mongering and hell you're even getting fear mongering with covid now like uh, pe- people pointing out shit about the vaccine and stuff leaving out information that these people had different diseases which led to their deaths and stuff it's all fear mongering will not go away i don't think it's just a shame that it exists though i don't like I don't like it either, but it's like it. it's sadly it's how some journalism survives. It's very true. It's very true. Shame, shaking our heads, shaking our heads. Um, but no, I, I do believe it was pneumonia that Dustin Hoffman and his famous coughing fits had throughout this whole movie. Yes. Yeah, and just on the bus, and like when he just dies there, and it's like. Can you just close his eyes? Yeah. I mean, that to me is like... Yeah, that shows John Voight growing as a person because he's he's made his whole thing about getting as many women as he wants. He doesn't really want to form a real relationship because of how traumatic his last one was. Yeah. And the 
true relationship he gets with this is with Dustin Hoffman, this platonic, beautiful friendship. And it's like he doesn't want to face the fact that he's died. So the closing of the eyes, it's almost like, hey, you can pretend he's sleeping now. And you feel you feel so happy for them that they're that they are getting out of their difficult situation in New York. They're going down to Florida, even if they're kind of forced to do it a little bit quicker because of, you know, Rico's illness and he's kind of getting worse. He needs the warm climate and all that business. Mm-hmm. Um, but you feel happy for them that they're going down there. You feel that things might get better for them. But we should know better than to think like that for a movie that's as harsh and cruel as this one. Yeah, and you we know? should clarify, since we mentioned it earlier, the whole thing with his John Voight's past relationships was that yes. him and his girlfriend, who I believe also had a mental illness, that's not as reflected in the movie as much, but they were raped by a bunch of cowboys. They were. They were. Both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, in a a few really horrific flashbacks. Um, yeah, the f- little flashback montages. Oh my god. The flashbacks it's, for it's, me were like breaking down what the classic American suburban fantasy is. It's just it's so just sad. Tough. It's really tough. Like that scene of just young John Voight watching the TV whilst like hell is going on behind him. It's it shows that like this whole cowboy thing it's kind of an escape for him and it's kind of weird that he's sort of taken that trauma and turned it into his identity and i i don't know if the movie would show that he does grow out of that identity after the ends of these movie but he he might do that's that's something that you analyze as a film fan you might do it doesn't outright tell you does it which is it's good that it leaves it up to, to that interpretation. I would like to think for for Joe Buck's well-being that this whole situation, his life up until this point that has been incredibly difficult, has made him a stronger person, has made him more capable of living a comfortable life to his own ideals, you know, and his own morals which is is what we all hope for i suppose isn't it no matter no matter what we go through if we go through any trauma at all you know we 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 all want to live a comfortable life in our own ideals that's a, a universal desire and it's you know easy to to identify with characters like that because we are all like that. Anybody with any little shred of a dream can see themselves in in some aspect of Joe Buck in Midnight Cowboy. Absolutely they can. Um, But my God, does it end on that painfully, painfully sad note when he realises that his best friend can't finish the journey with him it's it's a survivor that, story and it's kind of like oh you've you've got to go on and finish this by yourself now which exactly. is cruel it, it, it's cruel in the most tragic way but it feels very real to how a lot of trauma survivors stories are from, yeah. at least from what i've read and what i've seen in like documentaries and stuff yeah definitely absolutely um i like what you mentioned about the the flashbacks as well and you know young a young joe watching tv why uh, while hell is going on behind him because like like we we said uh similarly before escapism in this format can be a good thing because it can take your mind off things it can calm you down it can ease you it can help you get through tough times but you've got to balance it well with facing the truth. Otherwise, it will damage you. It will hurt you, you know, and you can you will become inconsolable if 
you are immediately confronted with masses of truth rather mm -hmm. than kind of having it slowly seep its way into your mind or, or slowly allow it to get into your mind. It's a, a much stronger person is somebody that does that rather than faces it all at once, you know, which is it's kind of what Joe does once he reaches New York. He's kind of forced to face it all at once, um, which makes it more kind of makes you feel more happy when they feel like they are getting out but then it hits you with one last gut punch and kills you off emotionally um but you wouldn't expect anything else from this movie and look while the movie while i think this movie is a very very sad movie you could also call it melancholy because at times it's kind of, it takes pleasure in the difficult times. You know, you feel like the characters are stronger because of the difficult times. You feel like they appreciate them in a strange, twisted way. Because it's made them who they are. Certainly Joe, you know, it's made him who he is. And he's very confident in himself, even when he's at his lowest point he's still very confident in himself and his abilities you know um it's just it's very interesting to think about it always has it always has a shred of positivity in there that you can take from it but ultimately it's very very sad to me it's a very very sad movie but my God, should everybody watch this movie? You know, it, it's, this isn't a kind of... This isn't the absolute depressing, it will ruin your entire life movie. Because it's it's too impressive to do that. It's not, you know, cliche enough to do that. It's not manipulative. It's not manipulating your emotions. It's just telling an honest story in a true-to-life way. Which, it's nice to watch fantasy movies a lot. Sometimes it's nice to actually watch a fairly hard-hitting drama movie every now and again, too. You need balance. That's what this is. Can't all be you the same. You need balance. Good balance. Perfectly balanced, as everything should be. Thank you, Thanos. Perfectly seasoned, as all meals should be. Thank you again to Thanos and his breakfast. <laughs> Nicely seasoned. That wasn't it from what I can remember. I'm doing the little, uh, you know, the little double knife sword thing. I forget what it's called. But, that th We're not here to talk about Thanos today, Nolan. Anything else we want to say about Midnight Cowboy? This is very tough material to deal with, so if you're sensitive to that, then... Uh... It's best to probably prepare yourself for it, and hopefully this discussion has prepared you for it, but yeah, I would recommend watching it, despite John Voight being a complete dick in real life. Oh yeah, but we but, can we can forget about that for the for the for the movie's sake, I think. Yes, it's a very good movie. It's a very, very good movie. And hell, if you're sick and tired of light hearted Dustin Hoffman Watch, oh, watch this movie as well if all you know Dustin Hoffman from is Hook and Kung Fu Panda watch this he's swearing like a trooper he's giving off all kinds of uh, sleazy vibes it's a very sleazy movie as well at times Nolan I, I like that about it pure like sleaze it is a phenomenal encapsulation of the time it came out and one of the most culturally impactful best picture winners in history, mm -hmm. I think. For so sure. Watch it, even if it's just for that novelty's sake. You know, even if you just watch it the once, watch it.
because of its relevance, because of its impact, because of its importance in the history of American movies. That can't be understated. Lovely. I think that will wrap us up for the movie discussion, will it? I, I, th I think it does, Nolan. I think it does. I know we, we like to end these things by talking about some fun things because, well, it might be a bit more appropriate today. Like you said, balanced as everything should be. It's been a little bit of a hard-hitting discussion, which is nice sometimes. It's nice. Um, well. So, but but let, let's, let's end it with some fun things, Nolan. Why not? Well, two trailers came out this week, and there's another they did. one. Another, actually, three trailers from the time this is up. I can assume the third trailer is awesome and going to be just a really fun, rompy, good time. But how about that Snyder Cut trailer, my friend? How about that Snyder Cut trailer? It. You didn't, I didn't see, see it. I didn't see it. Well, no, uh, I'm, I'm, I can I'm, tell I'm, you it I'm... looks good. Okay. Okay. I Look, I... I, I make no mistake I, I want to watch that movie i am excited to watch that movie i am sick and tired of seeing that movie on twitter i am with you on that sick and tired of it because it much like star wars it seems to just cause violence left right and center verbal violence that is left right and center with people fighting against people, and I'm not here for that. I'm not here for fighting, Nolan. I don't like it. I like people enjoying movies, whatever those movies are. And if people don't like a movie, I do not believe they should make it their goal to <laughs> to, to not like a movie publicly for the rest of their lives. Yeah, like... Uh... I you don't see me making constant tweets about 2015's Peter Pan movie, no, despite it no, being a horrific piece of garbage. I, I don't see that. I don't see that at all. Honestly, no, at I... this at this point, if you're if you don't like Zack Snyder movies, why are you going into this expecting to like? It? Well, at this point, if you don't like Zack Snyder movies, at this point, if you're not interested in watching this movie, then just like let the people who are. Just be interested and move your focus onto something that makes you happy. Except I mean, if... that some things are just not for you and that's okay. Of course it's okay. Of course it's okay. But I would just say, and look, I am a big proponent of this, obviously, Nolan. This is what It's a Wonderful Podcast... These are the foundations of what It's a Wonderful Podcast was built on. Celebrating wonderful movies. Those are the foundations. We don't talk about movies we don't like here. Because we're not here for negativity. We're here for celebration. We're here for discovery. We're here for positivity. you got to admit, though, it was fun to roast the Disney Peter Pan. Well, yes, it was, but that was so long ago now. No, <laughs> we were so different people ago. back then. We were <laughs> significantly different people. Whether it's a you know well, look whether it's a silly movie or a tough movie like this one today, we celebrate these movies because they are wonderful movies. We show positivity. So, look, if I, I will watch that movie. I will watch the Snyder Cut of Justice League. I will. If I like that movie, I will say yes. I like that movie. If I don't like that movie then to be perfectly honest, you probably won't hear me say anything about that movie. Totally fair. I'm not going to go out and publicly say, I hate this, this was terrible, piece of hot garbage, go away, boo. I'm not the, I'm not the woman, I'm not the old woman from The Princess Bride, Nolan. <laughs> you know, I don't just shout boo at things. Ah... Uh. Well, there was another trailer that came out that's got me pretty intrigued, to say the least. Would by any chance would this be the Cruella de Vil movie? It would be, because I think Art... Remember when we talked about 101 Dalmatians way I, back I do. when? I gotta say, I'm intrigued by this movie. I like how artistic it looks. I don't know if I'm gonna like it or not. 
but I am interested. It could be fun. This, will this not just be a little bit like uh, Maleficent? That's my fear because uh, I don't I don't know how they would do it, but I want Disney to just embrace them being bad guys. Cruella Deville is more fun if she is deliciously evil. True. Maleficent is more fun when she's deliciously evil. It's true. You have to be deliciously evil as well. Like you have to be so evil that you're actually good enough to eat. You have to be. It's a very important adjective. That's a one thing Disney villains have an advantage over. Their villains are so much fun to watch. They and are. from this, Emma Stone looks like she's going to kill it. I like the whole look of the movie. I okay. dig that they're. They had some kind of orchestral version of the Cruella Deville song playing in the trailer because, of course, they did. Oh dear! Obviously. Orchestral. How do you make that orchestral? It's the most small, nothing music piece of Disney songwriting ever. You don't have orchestral Cruella de Vil. You just have the one dude singing at his piano. What's his name? Roger. You just have him singing at his piano. Cruella de Vil. You don't need a big orchestra. I don't like that. And uh, Get rid of that. The other trailer that's come out, which I'm sure looks amazing, not indicating when we recorded this at a time, right. I want to see Mortal Kombat so badly. Mortal Kombat, okay. Well, yeah. to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not going to speak about Mortal Kombat because, as we've just said, Nolan, um, I don't speak about things that I'm, I, 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 well, I, I don't know if I don't like it, but I'm just not interested. Well, uh, as someone who grew up with his friends kicking the shit out of each other as Baraka <laughs> and Scorpion and Sub-Zero, I want to tell this movie to get over here so I can watch it and just have a good time. It's an all-Asian cast, and it looks pretty awesome. Well, that's that's fun. I like that. Well, for I the like Asian that. characters, anyway. There are some like American characters in Mortal Kombat, too. Okay. I like that. I like that, though. Um, no, I, I, I admittedly just have no history with Mortal Kombat, so I am distinctly not interested, so unfortunately you will not hear me talk in any length about Mortal Kombat. So you're pretty much confirming there won't be a Mortal Kombat episode on It's a Wonderful Podcast. No. Or, I mean... For God's sake, if Ginny wants to, she'll make it a Morgan hasn't seen, but I really kind of hope she doesn't. As soon as she um, hears this, she is going to make that happen. She gets evil ideas, Nolan. She gets evil ideas. She does. We don't need to give her any more. So uh, We don't I, need to give her any more. I, I want to end on a fun question, since... Uh, a question? Disney, Disney is doing this whole thing of uh, taking their villains and giving them movies. Yeah. Is there any villain you would like to see get their own prequel movie to explain why oh, they're evil? I mean, obvious. I mean, no, we can't have that, can we? Because he's dead. Assuming they'd cast... Ratigan, obviously, but... Well, assume they... Well, I don't know. If they did a live-action prequel of Rattigan, it'd just be like The Lion King, wouldn't it? God. Oh, God. Just a huge CGI rat. And a little... <laughs> and, and a slightly smaller mouse in a Sherlock Holmes outfit. Yeah, that's exactly what The Great Mouse Detective live-action... They would never, ever do a great mouse detective live action, Nolan. They won't. No, they will not. They will not do that. Live action Disney villain movie that I want to see. What about... Hmm... No, we've had enough Robin Hoods. That's also... <laughs> We've had en we've had enough Robin Hoods. What about what's a face from Tangled? Mother Gothel, Gothel. that's a good shout. Gothel, yeah. She's a good villain. Make make a Mother Gothel prequel movie to see how she became so goddamned selfish. In into that's it. what I wanna see. 
Uh, what would I want to see? I was thinking Gaston for some reason, but that's just the Wolf of Wall Street Disney version. Possibly. Possibly. I think you could make a pretty compelling one about Frollo. Frollo would be a good one. But it would be way too dark for now, Disney. It would. It would also have to be kind of super religious, but also like super anti-religious. Is Disney prepared to do that? No. Possibly not. A fun one would be Hades as well, just so they could cast somebody different, and I wouldn't have to associate James Woods with Hades anymore. <laughs> James Woods, much like John Voight. <laughs> really kind of a good actor, but we don't like them as a person. No, but we don't probably... like them as a person. On... I probably would not want to hang out with them, but I'm delusional if I think that was ever going to happen in the first place. That's true. That's very true. It's a good point. Yeah, I'll go with I'll go with Mother Gothel, though, because I like Tangled, and um, Mother Gothel is a is a fascinating villain. Okay, I think that will more or less wrap us up. It certainly will. This has been episode 148 of It's a Wonderful Podcast. The main show, of course. We've been celebrating the very hard-hitting movie, Midnight Cowboy, Best Picture Winner for 1969, John Voight, Dustin Hoffman, directed by Nolan, John Schlesinger. I can't say that name. I cannot say the name Schlesinger in the slightest, but I just tried doing it twice applause for me um yeah we've been talking about midnight cowboy today but of course this show the main show is not the only show you can find on the it's a wonderful podcast feed we have machine mondays every monday with the schmodowns janine the machine talking all things schmodown funnily enough we also have Morgan Hasn't Seen every Wednesday with me and Janine. Janine forces me to watch movies that I haven't seen. That's how it works over there. At the moment, we are doing a short little series on modern black and white movies. This week we talked the uh, Bruce Dern movie Nebraska from like 2013. It was an Oscar nominee and uh, a really good movie. A very, very quiet beautiful little sweet thing of a movie i liked nebraska we talked about that on morgan hasn't seen this week um it's got all going to be a short series because we're going to get into a karate kid series shortly so no one's clearly very excited about that with the aggressive gestures he's making at the moment Okay, this is good, this is good. If you're excited, this means hopefully many people will be excited, and that makes me excited. I like that. I just love the Um, Karate Kid, dude. Yeah. Well, you can also um, subscribe to the It's a Wonderful Podcast uh, YouTube channel, which has now been transferred the name to It's a Wonderful Podcast. It's where we do the watch-alongs and that sort of stuff. Uh, But more stuff is coming there in the very, very near future. As we do a full rebrand of of that channel, formerly my own YouTube channel, um, so you can go and subscribe over there. Just type in "It's a Wonderful Podcast" or you know the watch alongs. It's that channel. You'll find it. It's easy enough to find. Um, what else is going on? The It's a Wonderful Podcast feed, you can find it on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, CastBox, and all the other places podcasts are found. We have the It's a Wonderful Podcast Patreon, patreon.com slash it's a wonderful one. Check it out, find the tier that's right for you if you are feeling so inclined to join us on our wonderful Patreon journey. Or simply follow the show on Twitter at It's a Wonderful One. You can find me on Twitter at the Purple Dawn with the three instead of the E in the because three is always the magic number. Or on Instagram at just the Purple Don Nolan. All your good stuff is where is at Nolan Dean two seven on Twitter, where I'm probably ranting and raving about stuff that excites me. And you'll just have to deal with it. And also at Nolan Dean on YouTube, which has been dead for some time. And I should probably do something about that. We'll maybe be coming back? Question mark? Maybe, if I get a new laptop. (laughs) Good. We like that. 
There we go. It's going to do it. Look forward, guys, because the next time Nolan's on, it'll be episode 150. That's a little bit of a milestone, isn't it? What do it we is. have planned? You'll have to wait and see. It's are gonna we, be fun. Are, are we gonna shave our heads live on screen? Like it's exactly, it's exactly what we're gonna do. No. There we go. I'm not in, not this... into that at all. No, no, it's not, no one's not <laughs> excited about that. Anyway, this is where I will say thank you very much for listening. Goodbye, and ask Nolan to see us out. Ah, uh, this movie's kind of too depressing for me to have a themed sea out, so I'll just say goodbye. And thank you, Morgan, for having me on, as always. Bye, guys. Bye.